listeners, thanks for tuning in to Do You Queer What? I Queer. And that's that's totally it. (laughs) (laughs) And we're Dickwick recording as usual these days from Isolation. Correct. Which is so fun for everybody. Um, uh, Elliot and I just wanted to mention before we move forward, and Elliot, you're always more eloquent than me at this, but this isn't going to be like a regular sort of kooky, clitty clotty episode. Um, we were, we want to celebrate Pride, or sorry, we want to talk about Pride. Mm-hmm. And we have our own ideas of what that means. And there's so much unrest in the world as there always has been, but now it's more blatant. And um, we've been not struggling to find our voice, but struggling how to articulate our voice and use our platform for the right reasons. Um, and so this is this is what we've settled on. Um, a little disclaimer on my behalf, if you don't mind, Elliot and listeners. Yeah. It is extremely, extremely hot right now. Um, I have my windows open and there's like birds and wind. Um, <laughs> I love windy birds. Windy birds, like birds <laughs> flying into windows, but... No, and there's also, like, we're on the, like, verge of a, a huge storm mm-hmm. and a ten- tornado warning. So if something goes crazy, that's um, that's my bad. We love some pathetic fallacy, though, let's be real. <laughs> Very good use of English. What is it? Thank you. Devices. I don't know. Rhetorical devices. English devices. Good job. There will be a storm inside and a storm outside. Right. Um, I also, I have a few uh, disclaimers, the first of which is... Um, in in this not being kind of a normal Dickwick episode, uh, Tom and I have gotten feedback. Um, uh, and this is usually from older listeners, which is totally fair that we tend to potentially isolate some people by swearing. Um, we can be like overtly sexual. Um, those are things that we're not going to let go of in the long term. Um, that's just the people that we are. But for this particular episode, um, we wanted to do something just a little bit more um, I guess, serious that you could send around to family members. So we, this is our promise right now that um, there will be nothing like incredibly inappropriate. So you're welcome to send this to your parents, to your grandparents, et cetera. Um, and that being said, I do need to say, I, I talk about police brutality and there is mention of uh, sexual assault and physical assault. Um, so trigger warning from my end as well. Great. Okay. So uh, one more thing before we get started, Elliot, um, we want to outline what we're doing um, I'd like to touch on after after you after the stats that you're going to give mm-hmm. a bit about what it means to defund the police and specifically what it means in in Canada and Toronto and how that is different from the U.S. Amazing. Um, I wanted to have a, a frank conversation with you right up front, Elliot, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really nervous about this. Totally, because. Um, it's our duty, it's our duty. It's our, you know, it's our vocation in some ways to speak up on what's going on, especially during pride month, because this is what pride month is and should be about. Yeah. Um, and I have, um, I'm saying this because I'm thinking maybe some listeners relate to me, but I have some fear of not wanting to talk about it because I'm not educated enough because I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I get that's that that's always been our vibe with Dickwick from the beginning, but I feel extra out of my element right now. And um, that's a good thing. Yeah. And I don't want to shy away from it. Um, 
but I do just want to say that I'm nervous and I'm always nervous about discussions when, when it comes to race because I'm always worried I'm going to say the wrong thing and I'm sure I do say the wrong thing and I'm and looking at my white supremacist bubble it's always stressful because I do exist in a white supremacist society and I do um I get stuff from it I I know that that I know that I do that yeah and so I know that I need to dismantle it I know that I'm it has to be from within the system that I live in and um people a lot of people in my circles and my family my friends certainly in different sports leagues I play for Mm -hmm. look to me as sort of an authoritative voice when it comes to any social issue right which is funny and we've gotten ourselves in this weird situation where people do listen to our voices and I, we always frame this around us being stupid and us wanting to educate ourselves. And I know that's a disclaimer, but it's also not good enough. Like it is now the time to not be stupid anymore. So I guess with that is I'm saying that I want to pledge to be the voice that people expect from me. That makes any sense. And I'm not there yet and I'm not going to be there for a while, but I don't know. Now I'm just rambling. But. No, no, I appreciate you saying that. And like, I'm, I'm equally nervous for the same reasons. And it's time to, um, I mean, we, we've always tried to do this, but it's time more than ever to hold ourselves accountable. Um, and I'll hold you, you accountable, Tom. And I, and I hope that you can do the same for me. Um, and, I, and I did just want to say, like, I was actually going to save this to the end, but I think it's important on the heels of what you're saying. Um, you and I have been researching um, queer issues which which tie into all of this for many many years and so we're pretty deep in and i think a lot of the conversations we might have like even you saying like i'm in a white supremacist circle i'm not sure that a lot of listeners would even understand like you know that white supremacist white supremacist like culture exists in in all of us in all white people you know Mm -hmm. what i mean Um, and i was also just because we're two white people and we're definitely going to bring up um black lives matter and and you know like the civil rights movement that's going on right now I want to say something. I saw this really amazing video by Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, I posted it on Dickwick's story. Uh, she's a an author, a poet. She's like an amazing radical activist. And essentially what she says in the video, like there was this, this viral TikTok um, of this young woman named Haley who's arguing with her, her family. Haley's white. Her parents are white. And you just hear um, Haley's mom and dad's voice from off screen, essentially like um, arguing with Haley about the value of black life, like point blank. And Haley is arguing back, saying, of course, there's value in Black life. Um, what Sonia Renee Taylor says is like watching that video for her was, um, was, was just hard because the conversation shouldn't be about white people defending the value of Blackness. It should be about asking white people why that's a conversation we can even have. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like Taylor's thing is like, what, what in us, what, what fucking gap of empathy, I just swore, I'll bleep that, what <laughs> gap of empathy is there in white people that even allows that conversation to not like, to not just seem absurd, you know, like that that's even yeah. necessary. So um, in, in that vein, in that ethic, that's something that I want to kind of keep at the fore and just, you know, um, like that, that's not our intention with this conversation. Um, right. Does that's that make sense? Point. Yeah, no, no, I totally get it. Cool. Um, I will, yeah. No, 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 go ahead. It is uh, so something that you and I talk about a lot too is um, holding the people in our lives accountable too. Mm-hmm. And an easy thing to do 
that we can all do, I, I, I don't know, I think at least I can do that, is that is when you see racist things being said or done in any kind of situation, whether it be blatant or whether it be a little more, you know, insidious. Right. Like ma- micro to macro kind of. Sure. It is to just speak out on it. And if you're scared to do that, just address it. Just bring it up. You don't yeah. have to have any kind of wild argument. But you just have to ask some questions maybe about why 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 certain rhetoric is what it is or why someone would say what they said. I find that happens a lot with the older generations. Yeah. Certainly our parents and our parents' parents, they're not there as a generation where we are and as Gen Z is behind us. We're not to where they are. Like the world is moving forward and it's all of our job to help the people who aren't moving as fast as we are. Totally. Yeah, totally. Not that um, I'm at the front of that. I'm not. I'm in the middle, but that's yeah, what I'm trying to say. We're equally learning. Yeah. And like, I mean, uh, as as always, as we always say, like, we're inviting people to come learn with us, right? Like, we are, like you said, we're not experts on this. We're just going to have a conversation and like, um, hope to invite conversation with this. Um, okay, so can I can I just give a brief little rundown of what I'm about to say? Brief me. Um, okay, so uh, just in following, I was I was really struck by by what Sonia Renee Taylor said, and I and I wanted to kind of give um, give an argument. It's it's not my argument. It's not original, obviously. Um, I just I'm going to give some statistics and okay. stats are just numbers. Stats don't represent the individual human lives, the individual human suffering. And like, I recognize that. And statistics aren't always the best way to have these conversations. However, um, what, I'm, what I'm about to do is give a brief overview as to why um, white supremacy is a queer issue. It is, um, it's a race issue. It's an ableist issue. Um, I want to just kind of give a brief overview about how, you know, when we fight for queer issues and when we say we celebrate pride, we have to stand for all of these things because um, like point blank is that, you know, uh, you know, like, like since, since colonization, essentially um, colonizers deemed white, able-bodied, cis bodies valuable. That's just it. And we're still living in the shadow. It's barely even a shadow. It's like an existing institution that still exists um, very, very prevalently. And so, yes, there's been, there's been like minor steps, uh, outside of that institution and like quote unquote progress being made. But the reality is that like that still exists like at a very subconscious and conscious level in a lot of people. And so um, I'm going to give stats, but, but I guess the main argument that I'm making is like um, this, this won't be toppled overnight. Obviously there's a lot of amazing work being done and we all have to turn inside of ourselves and do that work and, and realize, um, you know, when people say like no pride in a police state, um, that's because we need to stand against police brutality um, if we're queer. Like, like just that's the bottom line, right? Like we still live in a society that values able-bodied people, white people, cis people, heterosexual people. I don't think I said that one before, but like all of those categories and as ridiculous as people, older people think it is like, oh, you know, you're just a snowflake and like we've moved so much ahead. It's like, no, like the, the institutions that colonizers put in place are still existing. Those are our, those are the cops, right? Like those are the RCMP. Like, yeah, it still exists. Anyway, sorry, that was a longer rant than I wanted, but that's that's what I'm gonna do. Essentially, 
Thank you. No, it's, it's, thank you. Okay. So that being said, um, I think, and sorry to dumb please, it down yeah, or no, water no. it down, which is what yeah. I'm quite good at is, is it's very important that this is happening during pride because thank all you. those groups of people that you mentioned, we should not celebrate anything until all those groups of people are treated with equity. Yeah. And, and so that's why I think it's important that this movement is happening now. I'm, I'm glad in a way that it's happening during pride because yep. the white gays can wake up and see that there was the, their fight isn't done. It was exactly. never done. It wasn't even started. Now is, now is the time to wake up. It's okay that you were asleep before. Yep. It's fine. Now, now wake up and do the work. Yeah. It's only fine if you're going to wake up, if you're going to stay sleeping. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, no, for sure. And like, I mean, outside of that, it's, it's not even as if the quote unquote rights that we have as quote unquote, like a community, it's not even as if that's because of gay white people fighting. That's like, that's like very much thanks to the labor of um, black and brown bodies and trans people. You know what I mean? Right. So yes, exactly. Yes. Um, yes no, you yeah. have them to thank for what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. You. So thank you for saying that. Um, with that being said, I'm going to read some statistics. Um, I know it's a lot to digest. If any listeners want to have like a pencil and paper um, and just like jot some things down, um, totally go ahead. I'm, I'm not giving these stats to overload people. I'm trying to kind of build a structural argument and I'll, and I'll get to my point at the end. Great. No, and I'll intrude with my own stupid questions. Please clomp in. Yeah. Um, okay. So these are some statistics from America. Uh, this is from a 2018 study from Trans Equality. Uh, quote, LGBTQ people, particularly LGBTQ people of color and low-income LGBTQ people are disproportionately likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system. Policies that criminalize poverty, homelessness, and participation in survival economies such as sex work also disproportionately impact LGBTQ people, especially transgender women of color. Um, so again, that's all to say, like at the intersection, right, of of everyone who's not wealthy, white, able-bodied cis, we have what people call the margins, and you know, and that is that is um, queer people and queer people of color and poor queer queer poor queer people of color and um, you know trans trans women especially. So, uh, 2015 uh, U.S. transgender survey, taking data from 2014, um, out of 20,000 trans participants, this survey found that two percent of the respondents had been incarcerated which is more than twice the rate of the general population at 0.87%. So that's out of 28,000 trans participants, 5,600 of them had been incarcerated um, in 2014 Yeah, in the States alone. Um, right. So of those incarcerated, the number of Black transgender women incarcerated was 9%, which is nearly 1 in 10 of those incarcerated, which is approximately 10 times the rate of the general population. So one in 10 of those incarcerated okay. of that study were, were trans women of color, um, which is not even to say like, like, or sorry, not trans women of color, black transgender women, which is not even to say like, you know, trans women of color or, or, you know, any, anyway. So yeah, that's a ridiculously high statistic. Um, there's another study from 2008 to 2009. It was a national transgender discrimination survey found that 16% of the respondents had been incarcerated at any point in their lives, but 47% of those incarcerated were black transgender people. Um, so 47. Yeah, so that is almost half, from 2008 to 2009 in the States. Whoa, that is a statistic that you cannot look away from. I know, right? Um, so then 
it, it goes on, um, federal data suggests that lesbian, gay, and bi people are three times as likely to be incarcerated as a general population, and over 40% of incarcerated women are lesbian or bisexual. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and while an estimated 7% of youth in the United States are lesbian, gay, or bi, and like sidebar, I would contest, I think the number is much higher, but those are always conservative. Um, so while 7% of youth in the U.S. are lesbian, gay, or bi, between 12% and 20% of youth in juvenile detention facilities identify as lesbian, gay, or bi. So that's a lot more than the 7% that it should be if it's going to actually represent the general population, right? Um, and in right. one study, 85% of incarcerated lesbian, gay, and bi youth were people of color. 85% of lesbian, gay, bi youth incarcerated were people of color. Wow. That's almost all. <laughs> That's almost all. <laughs> right? Sorry, I feel dumbfounded. Like, no, I know, like, please. Oh my God. But no, please. And like, I know it's like numbers are, numbers are hard, you know, to, to hear. Um, and I hope if this not hitting you, like I like the emphasis that you're giving Tom and I hope if these numbers aren't hitting, like at least it's kind of washing over, right? Like this is a, an enormous structure, an enormous system yes. put, in, put yes. in place, intentionally put in place to police these people, right? Um, okay, it continues. So once in prisons and jails, LGBTQ people are especially vulnerable to abuse and mistreatment, both by other prisoners and by the staff of the prisons. That is physical and sexual abuse, as well as being subject to solitary confinement. Trans people are nearly 10 times more likely to be sexually assaulted than the general prison population. Um, so there's this book that I have called LGBTQ Stats. Um, they're specifically American Stats. It's by Deschamps and Singer. So 21% of LGBT people who dealt with the police reported hostile attitudes from cops in 2015. That's I'm surprised that number's low. Yeah, that's actually true. Um, almost a quarter. 14% of those reported verbal assault. 48% of LGBT people who dealt with police after experiencing violence. So imagine you're queer, you experience violence, and then you call the cops. Um, 48% of those people reported misconduct by the officer with whom they interacted, including unjustified arrest, use of excessive force, and entrapment. So That's you've half. been, yeah, you've been attacked and half of the cops that respond attack you and arrest you and entrap you when, when you need help. That's fucking half. Um, okay, so two thirds of Latina trans women in LA who interacted with police reported that they were verbally harassed. 21% reported being physically assaulted and 24% report they were sexually assaulted by the police. A quarter. Oh dear. Of Latina trans women in Los Angeles. 46% um, okay. of trans people polled were uncomfortable seeking help from the police. So almost half. So, okay, and like sexual victimization is, is coming up here, so trigger warning. Um, sexual victimization by a member of the prison facility past within the past year, this is from 2011, 2012 statistic, was reported by. So the stats I'm about to give you are the percentage of people who reported being um, sexually assaulted by a prison staff. 16.7% okay. of transgender prisoners, 6.1% of non-heterosexual male inmates, which is compared this is to the staff of the prison. Yes. Yes. Not even other okay. prisoners. All right. Okay. Um, so yeah. So 6.1% of non-heterosexual male inmates compared to the 2% of heterosexual male inmates who were sexually assaulted by staff. Um, and then 3% of non-heterosexual female inmates compared to 1.4% of heterosexual female inmates. Um, so now sexual victimization, but from other inmates was reported by 24.1% of trans prisoners. 11.9% of non-hetero inmates versus 1% of hetero male inmates. 
and 9.4% of non-hetero female inmates versus 3.6% of hetero female inmates. Just, yeah, I, there's really nothing to say there. Um, okay, now I'm moving on to a study from UCLA found that LGBT people of color and trans people were most targeted by police officers. 48% of LGBT victims of violence polled in a 2013 survey reported experiencing police misconduct. So that's almost half queer people had police misconduct um, who were victims of violence. Nearly half of transgender respondents in another national survey said they felt uncomfortable seeking police assistance. That's not surprising. Exactly. Um, okay, so this next, this next statistic I'm going to give is, um, is about the, the population of Black and Indigenous people in prisons in the States versus um, the general population that is Black and Indigenous. This number was like kind of surprisingly hard to find. Um, uh, and I, and I've, seen, I've seen other numbers of this, but so, okay, so here it is. So 30% of inmates in America are Black, but only 13% of the American population is Black. Um, so yeah. that's a huge discrepancy. That number, though, um, was 20% higher uh, in, or no, sorry, between 2007 and 2017, that number fell by 20%. So that number was actually much, much higher. And I was seeing a lot of articles that said, like, um, you know, the, the statistics are still horrifying. There's still a, a, a mass overrepresentation, a mass incarceration of Black people. But there's a lot of um, prison abolitionists who are working very hard. And thanks to that work, the numbers are falling. Um, and in fact, they do continue to fall. Um, so while 38% is ridiculously high, like it's it's at 38% thanks to the tireless work of prison abolitionists. Does that make sense? My goodness. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so then... Um, so if we're climbing Everest, we're at like the first step of the mountain. Exactly. And it's like, obviously something to like celebrate that it's low, but it's also like horrifically high. You would right. still die if you fell off that first step, right? Right, right, right. right. Um, Okay, so um, this is from, this is a 2010 statistic. I couldn't actually find a more updated one, but, um, and the language used on the site was Native Americans. Um, So Native Americans incarcerated at a rate 38% higher than the national average in the States. Um, This is from prisonpolicy.org. They did a study that found that in 19 states, Indigenous people were overrepresented in the prison population compared to any race or ethnicity. So in 19 states in the United States, um, the highest incarcerated people are Indigenous people, like like at a, at a grave overrepresentation. Wow, I would not have guessed that. Well, and also it's because like, you know, if you if you're policing Indigenous bodies, like the the percentage of Indigenous people in the states is already low. Um, like also thanks to ongoing colonial violence. So, like, I don't. It's just I don't know. That it's just it's staggering. Um, okay, how are you feeling, Tom? Uh, fine. Like th- these are a lot of numbers and a lot of stats for a visual person like me, but yes. like what I am, what is sticking into my brain is horrifying and yet not surprising. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to try and like, I'm going to try and kind of summarize this at the end. So I'm going to switch to Canada now. So a 2018 study from public safety Canada found that 24% of the prison population is indigenous compared to 4.9% of the general population being indigenous. So that's 4.9% of Canadian, like so-called Canadians being Indigenous um, versus 24% in prison. 24% of people imprisoned in Canada are Indigenous? indigenous. Correct. Yeah. Which is like, again... that is an astronomical number. I know. And it's it's like, it's part of the structure because when you think about it, the RCMP officers were created um, 
to haul kids into residential schools, to break up yes. indigenous families, to police indigenous bodies. Like that never stopped. So right? it never stopped. Exactly. It just um, became more sneaky. Yeah. And like their fault, you know, like yes, the language yes. changed and they're criminals now or whatever. Yes. Um, also, I want to say, did, did you watch um, uh, Ava DuVernay's 13th, the film 13th? Um, no, I've been meaning to. I'm a bad person. Okay, no, you're not a bad person. Um, <laughs> watch it, though. Everyone should watch it. Um, her argument, essentially, is that... Um, so the 13th Amendment in the United States is is the amendment that's, like, so-called abolishes slavery. But yes. in that amendment, there is a clause that says you're free unless you're a criminal. Yes, so, I knew that. Right? So what happened was... And I mean, and like, this is going all over the internet, which is amazing. So I'm sure a lot of people have. But for those who haven't, what essentially happened was once slavery was so-called abolished in the South, um, the economy was in shambles because it was built on free labor. So if you take away that enormous um, population of free laborers, slaves then what the state did was they put that clause in and then started criminalizing black people. So they just filled in the free labor by calling them criminals and then building that back up. And they were, they were arresting black people for, for like ridiculous things like loitering. And so, which right. is why, which is why like the, the kind of national imaginary that like black people are threatening and criminal is, is a direct, direct insidious move in order to get people to be criminalized, to then be imprisoned, to then give back to the um, free labor economy or become slaves. It's baffling to me because anyone with half a mind would understand that. Anyone yeah. with half a mind. And, but it, that just goes to show how deep and disgusting these, frankly, lies go. Like, exactly. They're everywhere. They're in our education system. They're in our history. It's and it, and, it, and it settles inside of people like for any like you know old white person who like clutches their purse when they see a black person walk by because they feel unsafe that's the legacy of that very insidious move to criminalize black bodies like like you know what i mean like it's just it, it comes to live inside people and then the system the work of the system is being reproduced in a personal level then it's like you know citizens criminalizing other black people and not just the state like it's so widespread Okay, I'm going to keep going on with Canada. <laughs> yeah, so a 2017... As you're talking, I'm sorry, I can't help but notice, like, the sky outside my window is literally becoming a dark mass. And, like, like I, just got a I just got a tornado notification on my phone, and I just feel like this may come to the most dramatic ending I'm, ever which is appropriate especially for me i'm gonna still be podcasting as there's like yeah. a dorothy tornado in your apartment yeah. there's a cow that takes me out <laughs> it's like tom you're not listening you're not being a very good listener um okay so 2017 study from the john howard society of canada black people are overrepresented in canadian prisons by 300 percent about 10 percent of the prison population is black versus 2.9 percent of canadians being black to a 300% increase of overrepresentation. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, indigenous people are overrepresented in prisons by nearly 500%. Indigenous and black people are more likely to be victims of crime. The indigenous murder rate in Canada is seven to eight times higher than the overall murder rate. In Toronto, where black people are 4% of the population, they account for as many as 40% murder victims. Holy crap. Um, an analysis of 10,000 arrests in Toronto showed that black people were 50% more likely to be taken to a police station for processing after arrest and 100% more likely to be held overnight than were whites. Is that the wind? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> like I'm not worried. Right <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, that's really surreal. So 
yeah, so they were 100% more likely to be held overnight than were whites, white people. This article says whites. Um, even taking into account criminal history and age, I don't really understand that. Um, when given bail, black people had more conditions imposed than white people did. In Nova Scotia, black people are 2% of the population, but 14% of the jail population. In Manitoba, indigenous people are 16% of the population, but 70% of the jail population. That's 70. 70% of the jail population in Manitoba is indigenous. In Alberta, the numbers for indigenous people are 6% population, 39% prison population. Moreover, these imbalances are getting worse, not better. Once in jail, these minorities are more likely to be subject to disciplinary procedures and less likely to be paroled. Indigenous people make up more than 21% of federal prisoners, but less than 14% of parolees. That's a 50% underrepresentation. <sighs> um, thanks for closing that. That's really intense. <laughs> that tree is like when a snap. Bear with me. I'm just um, boarding up the windows here. This is all happening in real time. I wonder who your tin man is going to be. You. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> the, obviously the gayest one also. <laughs> um, oh, they're also gay. Yeah, they're also gay. Um, okay. So I will continue. Okay. Um, are you ready for more? Uh, no and yes. So this is from an Instagram post of sources and it was compiled by Instagram users at Delaney Sophia at xfal.a and at danielle02, danielle underscore o2. So in Toronto, black people are 3.2 times more likely than white people to be stopped by the police without being suspected of a crime. Black people are 20 times more likely to be shot by police. The federal incarceration rate of black people increased by 70% between the years of 2005 and 2016 due to over-policing. Toronto's population is 8.5% black yet make up 37% of police brutality victims in the city. Um, and now I realize that number is higher than the 4% given that I gave before, but I think that's because one's the GTA and one's the downtown core. Yeah, don't forget that like we became a me mega city in 98, which includes like Scarborough and Etobicoke and North York. Right. So the, the boundaries of Toronto are very contested. That's, that's true. That's a good point. Thank you. And also like some of these statistics contest each other, but they're also um, from different, uh, you know, from different years, from different like surveys. And I, I just think I'm capturing a general picture here. Yeah. Um, in Canada from 2007 to 2017, more than a third of those shot and killed by the RCMP were indigenous. Oh shit. Oh crap. Is... I just swore twice. <laughs> <That's>, I'm going <laughs> to, I'll try and bleep. Um, if, if we broke a promise to everyone, like, sorry, but I'm sure people can deal with a couple swears. Um, okay, so this is from a dissertation that I found written by Priscilla Ramjeet uh, for Wilfrid Laurier University. So, quote, fear of reporting crimes, fear of discrimination and judgment, police failure to address LGBTQ plus issue, issues and mishandling missing LGBTQ plus persons investigations with a dismissive attitude are just some of the challenges and legal injustices that LGBTQ plus people or individuals face in Canada, as well in the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. So essentially what's, what that's saying is like, why would queers trust cops? Cops, you know, mishandle queer cases. They don't care about queer death. Um, it's a very real thing that happens. Uh, stats in Canada are actually harder to find um, about police brutality against queer people. 
Um, obviously doesn't mean it's not a problem. We've all seen firsthand that it is. Uh, there are too many stories of trans people being dead named and misgendered in Canadian courts and prisons and being sent to the wrong prison, like trans, trans women being detained in men's prison. Um, it wasn't until December 27th, 2017, that a policy change allowed trans people to be put in prisons based on their gender identity and not on anatomy. Not until 2017. Um, and even then, from what I can tell, this is being done on a case-by-case -case basis and is not a perfect solution. It doesn't mean that someone snapped their finger, right? Yeah, I was going to say, like, they say that, but I, I wonder what the actual stats are on. Exactly. Um, yeah. What, what the system deems as appropriately trans. Exactly. And also, like, so for our listeners maybe who aren't very well versed in, um, you know, like, trans issues and trans lives to be dead named is when somebody uses the name that you were given at birth um and not the name that you know not your real name not the name that you chose for yourself um and being misgendered of course is is giving somebody the gender that they were assigned at birth and not their actual gender um which is incredibly violent and it you know it causes like dysphoria it's just it's it's a really violent act to do and this is happening in like in courtrooms and by police and by authority um which just goes to show that people you know like if the state doesn't care, why should everyone else? Yeah. It's like all part of the same issue. Yeah. So finally, and not least importantly, this is a disability justice issue as well. Um, I found a Medium article written by Stephanie Lynn Kaufman Mitimkulu, um, citing the work of a bunch of amazing disability activists as well. So mentally ill, mad, disabled, neurodivergent, and deaf Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color account for over 50% of police deaths and mentally ill slash mad, disabled, neurodivergent, and deaf folks are more than 16% more likely to die in a police encounter. Oh my God. Yeah. So half of the, half of the deaths from cops are disabled people, um, right, specifically BIPOC disabled people. And um, these disabled folks are 16 times more likely to die in an encounter with the police. Um, actually, sorry, that, that's like, that's all dis disabled people are 16% more likely. Um, this is from the Ruderman Foundation's 2016 executive summary on policing and disability. Disabled individuals make up a third to half of all people killed by law enforcement. Disability intersects what? with yep. Disability intersects with other factors such as race, class, gender, and sexuality to magnify degrees of marginalization and increase the risk of violence. So that was that was general statistics. That wasn't for Canada. That was for the states. And generally, I I think. So this is actually a way bigger issue than, than um, the media tends to report on. Just for example, in the United States, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Tanisha Anderson, Deborah Danner, Azelle Ford, Alfred Alongo, and Keith Lamont Scott are only a few names of black people killed by the police in the US and they were all disabled. They all had one or more disability. My God. In Canada, this is within the past couple weeks. On May 27th, uh, Regis korczynski pocket was a disabled Black and Indigenous woman who was suffering from epileptic seizures when cops were called to take her to CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and she ended up falling, or yeah, something, 24 stories, uh, to her death. Chantelle Moore, an Indigenous woman from the Clayquot First Nation in New Brunswick, was experiencing a mental health crisis on June 4th when a cop showed up and shot her five times to death. Um, DeAndre Campbell was a black man living in Peel, Ontario, who had schizophrenia. He called the police on himself to take him to a hospital on April 6th. He was shot and killed by the responding officer. Oh my dear God. Now, uh, 
Regis was alleged to have a knife, although the family disputes this. Chantel Moore was alleged to have a knife. DeAndre Campbell was also alleged to have a knife. This does not matter. It doesn't give cops the excuse to use excessive force. The cops um, didn't try to de-escalate in these situations. Um, it shouldn't have even been a police officer that showed up in these instances, right? These people needed a wellness check. These people needed help. Um, and instead, they were police and they were met with force. And, you know, it's part of a larger, it's part of a larger issue as well where uh, how many times have you heard an unarmed black person? It doesn't yeah. fucking matter if they were armed or not. The cops shouldn't be using force at all, you know? Yeah, it just, it goes to show, and it's a very simple example of what we mean, what anyone means when they say defund the police. Yeah. Because when we take money away from these armed, angry white men with a grade 10 edge, sorry, and who throw disabled people off balconies. Yeah. Sorry, I'm yeah. simplifying that. No, majorly. for sure. And I mean, like the 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 mom has has re recanted her statement that she was pushed. Um, okay, but still, they probably drove her there because they were violent and they and they didn't let her family in. And Regis was calling for her mom for help, and the cops closed the door behind them. And whether she was so afraid that she thought she had to, you know, scale the balcony to get away from them, like it's it's almost the same as if they pushed her, right? That's right. And the point is reallocating those funds to someone who would have been able to de-escalate that situation properly yeah. rather than have one sort of banner police officer that deals with that and a bank robbery. There are no bank robberies, but if there were, yeah. you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, totally. Um, I'm really excited for your segment and I'm gonna, I'm almost finished. So all I wanna say is queer issues, our disability issues, our race issues, queerness, decolonization, Black Lives Matter, disability justice, these things can't be unsutured from one another. I want to put a call forth and I want to say that anytime a company uses a pride flag or celebrates pride or anything like that, we actually need receipts on how they're combating or even discussing these issues, all of these issues, not just one, not just for upper middle class white bodies, for, you know, for this, this, this intersectionality that's um, not only exists, but it exists for a reason. Oh my God, Tom, I can hear the thunder. <laughs> right. Um, so, so like, I just want to say, you know, no pride in a police state. Um, and also, you know, this is what pride should and like should always have been and, and is and will be going forward. And I think that, you know, as like aspiring queer activists that you and I are, I really want to continue to put a call forward that you can't stand for, for, you know, a rainbow flag and say like, oh, I love the gays. And like that, that can't be it. Like it absolutely can't end there. And this is for queer people as well. Yeah. I know a lot of gay people and white gay people, especially who, you know, aren't intersectional. Yeah. Um, okay. So you this is all. You can't celebrate or go to pride. You can't engage with pride unless you understand that that is for everybody putting more emphasis on anybody in the margins. Like exactly. Duh, that's the point. Exactly. And like, okay, so this is all to say that queer lives and queer issues have always been plagued by and come into contact with police brutality in one form or another. Um, and like in Canada, as we recently saw with the mishandling of the Bruce MacArthur case, um, police deprioritize queer people, especially queer people of color, um, and allowed a killer to keep killing. So I just kind of want to flip into uh, how police brutality has intersected with, you know, queerness and how the queer movements defined against police brutality. So Toronto's first Pride Parade was in 1981, which was immediately following and because of um, Operation Soap, which was uh, the, the series of bathhouse raids in 1981, where more than 150 police simultaneously raided Club Baths, Romans 2, Health and Recreation Spa, the Richmond Street Health Emporium, and the Barracks in Toronto. 
20 owners, including George Hislop and Peter Maloney, were charged with, quote, keeping a common body house. 286 men are charged as found-ins. The Richmond was also so heavily damaged from the raids that it never reopened. So essentially what that history is, is and that, that's not the only time bathhouse raids have happened um, in Canada, nor in the world, um, but cops went in and arrested people for, for being in a bathhouse right. um, in the 80s, which is so fucked. Um, so this raid and the aftermath of the protests is also likened to the Stonewall riots. People compare them. Um, they kind of say that that was like, you know, Canada's Stonewall, um, which gave way, Stonewall gave way to the United States' first Pride March. In both instances, however, there were both preceding and proceeding events of police brutality against queer communities. And I, I hear often like, you know, Stonewall's mythologized as, as that one event. And like, you know, there, there were multiple, um, multiple instances of police brutality against especially lower income um, and queer communities and queer communities of color. And, and there have been after that. And, you know, pride was measured against saying, like, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, a, it was a movement saying, we're not going to put up with police brutality anymore. So it can't just be about complacency. Um, mm. So we need to keep this energy up today. And we need to keep demanding an end to police brutality against queer people, trans people, black people, indigenous people, and people of color, which obviously aren't distinct identities, um, also disabled people, and recognize um, and recognize also that low-income communities are especially at risk because they can't make bail or afford resources to themselves. You know, if you can if you can pay bail or get yourself good legal aid, that's one thing. But a lot of these communities that are targeted are also um, low-income. So, like, the system is just so large and so insidious, and there's a lot of ways in and a lot of ways to help. But we need to recognize how um, how ubiquitous it is, and and how how many bodies are deemed you know unworthy. Um, Okay, almost done. <laughs> so now this brings me to my whole entire point. Um, this is all white supremacy. Uh, I found a master's thesis by Joe Cuto. Um, it's called Covered in Blue, Police Culture and LGBT Police Officers in the Province of Ontario. And essentially what this thesis does is it argues that police culture is hyper-masculine, heterosexual, and white. I would also add ableist. Policing as an institution is a direct descendant from colonial forms of control and dominance, which sought to eradicate indigenous lives, non-heterosexual lives, non-cisgender lives, disabled lives, black lives, maintain white supremacy, and suppress and oppress black people and people of color. This is to all the white people listening. We are all steeped in this ongoing history of white supremacy. This history isn't history, it's contemporary, it's all around of us, and it's inside of us as well. When I look at the injustices of the so-called justice system, I see how white supremacy is continually enforced. If you think about it, you're raised to trust authority, and the police are the epitome of authority in Western societies. When this massive structure shows white people that black, brown, indigenous, disabled, and queer people are criminal, suspicious, deserving of violence, and not deserving of protection, white people internalize this and reproduce it at all levels, including the subconscious level. It, there's an awful and unsurprising history in queer movements in the West where white queers, specifically non-disabled, white gay men, usually middle to upper middle class, benefit from the action and labor of black people, indigenous people, and people of color only to turn around and participate in systems of violence that marginalize the very people who fought for the same rights that they come to enjoy, right? Yeah. Like, so like, you know, we all have trans women of color to thank for, for, for Stonewall and, and that's not even the end of it. And um, we've talked about this before uh, in an episode, I think it's episode 13 or 17, um, where you know, Sylvia Rivera, who is, you know, like the trans activist of color, um, gets up at, at, 
at like a, a pride event and essentially is booed off stage. And she's like, you know, I, I'm, I fought for all of these rights and I'm fighting for all your rights. And I'm writing to people who are incarcerated, who are being sexually assaulted in prisons and all of these like white middle-class people boo her off stage. So um, just, we can't, we, that can't happen anymore, you know? Anyway, that's it. I'm yes. sweating like Richard Nixon. It's that's like the lowest degrees. rung of the ladder of everything that we can be doing. The lowest rung is stop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, stop racism whenever you see it. Exactly. Wow. Um, I know so, like, we always say don't thank us for what we're doing, but thank you for all those stats. Like, thanks well, no, for I, sitting again, down. And- don't thank me. Right. Like, this is all bare minimum. Um, I, I also want, I want to say really importantly, like I'm a part of this, like I'm white, you know, I'm perceived as cis, um, often. And like, I'm not, I'm not, not part of this history. I don't stand against it. And I think it's really important. And, and I really don't want my tone to convey any sort of like moral high horse and, or holier than thou, because this is a, we problem. This is an all of us problem. And, um, I specifically want to, invite all of our listeners and you know myself and yourself included to like speak to our white families and yeah you know really take into account what Sonia Renee Taylor said who like we need to question why why these structures exist inside of us why this is even a thing that's happening or a conversation that's happening um instead of disputing you know the value of black lives so yeah let's flip on over to you Tom um I was going to make a point about I have a bunch of statistics from from the TDSB, the Toronto School Board, cool. about how systems of racism affect not just, like, we're not just talking about the police here. We're talking about education. We're yeah. talking about healthcare. We're talking about housing. These systems of racism infiltrate everything that we do and are. We already know that. We've already made that clear. But I, I don't know. I'm going to skip the stats and just say this, that a lot of my students that I work with most of them are um, racialized in racialized communities. When COVID hit and people need to be taking online classes and even before COVID hit with everything that the Ontario government is doing, trying to um, uh, move courses online, which in a great world, sure, that makes sense. But none of a, a, a small majority of my students have access to computers and the internet. Yeah. And when you cut funding to public libraries, there's nowhere for them to go. There's no way for them to do their work. And of course they're going to fall behind. Of course they're going to get worse grades. Of course they're going to get into more trouble. It's just like a vicious cycle. And I just, I, I say, I say that, that as an educator, just so that we recognize that it happens in, in every way that we live and sadly with children. Yeah. And, and like, and like at that point, like that specific example is really great because intentions don't have anything to do with it. You can do something really well intentioned and it can still be part of this institution, you know, of, of like of white supremacy and, and lack of empathy towards people. And just because you had well intentions, it doesn't actually give you the right to get defensive and to not listen to criticism, you know, yeah. like, they meant to do well, but in reality, you're going to leave a lot of kids behind. So like, what's the next plan, you know? Yep. Um, okay. So I got this off Twitter from at People's City Council, and this is from LA. And the reason I'm focusing on LA is because uh, earlier this week, it came out that the mayor 
had sought to um, defund the police. Mm-hmm. And when you do a little, more, a little bit more digging, it's a little bit more problematic than we had initially hoped that it was. Oh, no, uh, ho- no un- not hoped that it was. Right. Um, <laughs> un- unhoped, the opposite. Un- unhoped. <laughs> this, is, this is how educated I am. Um, so I just wanted to say that so this this movement to a, is to defund the police, but also we might dig a little deeper and perhaps abolish the police altogether. Mm-hmm. And so here's some some questions that people might ask about abol- abolishing or defunding the police. And here's what um, sorry, People City Council responded. So won't abolishing the police create chaos and crime? And how will we stay safe? And the answer is. Police abolition work is not about snapping our fingers and instantly defunding every department in the world. Rather, we're talking about a gradual process of strategically reallocating resources, funding, and responsibility away from the police and toward community-based models of safety, support, and prevention. The people who respond to crises in our community should be the people who are best equipped to deal with those crises rather than strangers armed with guns who very likely do not live in the neighborhoods they're patrolling, we want to create space for more mental health service providers, social workers, victim survivor advocates, religious leaders, neighbors, and friends, all of the people who really make up the fabric of the community to look out for one another. That makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. But what about armed bank robbers, murderers, and supervillains? So the answer is, crime isn't random. Most of the time it happens when someone has been unable to meet their basic needs through other means. So to really fight crime, we don't need more cops. We need more jobs, more educational opportunities, more arts programs, more community centers, more mental health resources, and more of a say in how our own communities function. Sure, in this long transition process, we may need a small specialized class of public servants whose job it is to respond to violent crimes. But part of what we're talking about here is what role police play in our society. Right now, cops don't respond to violent crimes. They make needless traffic stops, arrest petty drug users, harass black and brown people, and engage in a wide range of broken windows policing behaviors that only serve to keep more people under the thumb of the criminal justice system. But why not fund the police and fund all these alternatives too? Why is it an either or? Well, the answer is this. It's not just that police are ineffective. In many communities, they're actively harmful. The history of policing is a history of violence against marginalized American Americans and Canadians. Uh, police departments were originally created to dominate and criminalize communities of color and poor white workers, a job they continue do, doing to this day. To your point, Elliot, this list has grown even longer. LGBTQ folks, people with disabilities, activists, so many of us are attacked by cops on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it's bigger than just police brutality. It's about how the prison industrial complex, the drug war, immigration law, and the web of policy, law, and culture that forms our criminal justice system has destroyed millions of lives and torn apart families. Cops don't prevent crime. They cause it through the ongoing violent disruption of our communities. Yes. Thank you for that. I just thought it was really eloquently worded and there's no way that I would have been able to um, say it better than them. So check them out. Uh, Again, that's People City Council of LA. 
I have a couple things to say to that. Um, yes. Sorry, go ahead if you're not finished. No, 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 no. I was going to move on, so go. Do you mind? Yeah, before we do. So um, a friend of mine is a disability uh, studies like activist and scholar, and um, shout out to Hannah, and she's been posting a lot and a lot of articles about, um, you know, uh, like defunding is what's necessary, um, but we also need to start talking about abolition because um, social work is also something um, that's rooted in histories of, um, you know, especially anti-Indigenous sentiment and taking Indigenous children away. And it's rooted in its own history of white supremacy, um, which is not to say that like a transition to social work wouldn't be more beneficial than than a cop showing up. Um, but it is to say that a lot of the systems that we have need an entire rethinking. And I was talking to my brother today on the phone and he he was saying like, you know, the fact that white people's initial snap reaction to hearing defund the police is, but the police are essential, is the internalization of this. It, our, our imaginations have become so dulled by accepting this reality that we can't imagine anything outside of it, but it doesn't mean yeah. that there isn't anything. We yeah. just need to be more imaginative, right? And we need to not settle for, um, for lesser violences. And it's like you're saying, it's like, it's not like you're going to snap your fingers and it's going to happen, but it's this, it, it, it's, it's an enormous, enormous amount of work and it's going to take a lot of people. And like, I'm, um, I'm willing and I'm, I'm happy. I, I, want, I want to help imagine that world in any way that I can. Um, sure. And in also, a way, that's, these concepts are not difficult to understand. They are exactly. quite simple. So in a way, in a, in a perfect world, we'll see, we can all get behind a, an idea like this. And I do feel like putting into practice probably seems really daunting. I know yeah. when, I, when I first read Defund the Police, I was like, oh, no way. That's crazy. We'll live in an anarchist society. But it really, once you look at the numbers and once you break it down, which I'm about to do in Toronto, yeah, you'll see. And 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 that's also that that reaction comes from our own history of um, not having to be afraid of the police, right? And 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 thinking of them as a necessary authority. Um, and like, it's funny too. I was talking to my brother, and he was like, you know, when when was a time where you were actually like happy that the cops showed up? Like, when was a time where the police showed up to something and you felt relief? And like, never. Like for me, never, um, you know, and it, it would be so much different to have people who have the same lived reality and sensitivities. And um, anyway, yeah, one more thing. Something my brother also said is um, the person who wrote The Wire um, followed around the Baltimore police um, for years as, a, as an investigative journalist. And what he saw was that the cops were arresting uh, black drug dealers at the lowest rung just to fill quotas. Um, they, they had quotas to fill and they wanted to get their statistics up. So they were oh, arresting people sakes. and putting people in prison and not arresting the, the, the providers. And also like the war on drugs is bullshit. They shouldn't, you know, have been arresting any of it, but um, you know, they, like there's, there's also prison quotas in the States. The prisons have quotas of the bodies that need to be put in bed. Right, they're money-making machines. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So sorry, that's, that's the aside that I wanted to. No, that's okay. We both just swore a few times. So I say, you know what? We're swearing. That's yeah. us expressing ourselves. Okay. I, 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 would rec- I don't think you should bleep it out, but you can if you want. Sorry, grandmas. No, I won't. I'll just <laughs> go back and I'll say something about that at the beginning. Okay. So as I said before, one, one thing I shared on social media, which I thought at first was I was excited about, was that the Los Angeles mayor, Eric Garcetti, Garcetti or Garcetti, sorry, I'm, I'm not pronouncing that right. Um, he pledged to cut 100 to 150 million dollars from the LAPD budget, which I found really exciting until you found out how much money that really is. And in the long in the long and short of it is that's like a bike lane. 
Right. It's kind of nothing. Like, so (laughs) this year, the police budget in LA, I can't even understand this, 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 it's, it's three, over $3 billion. (gasps) So the $100 million barely even uh, deals with the inflation that it would have naturally gone up next year. Oh my God. So it's that not even, amount oh of money God. is nothing. It's a penny in a fountain, right? It's perf- it is literally performative and it <laughs> tricked all of us. Yep, I was fooled. <laughs> so I really do suggest that when you see studies like that or articles like that, get find out more information because yeah. it may just be, what's it called when you just talk... Um, like it may just be lip service. Lip service. Thank you. You're so smart. <laughs> Sometimes we're not on the same wavelength, but today we are and it's working. <laughs> so what does it mean in Toronto? Well, it means this. Last year, police, uh, police services in Toronto, we spent $682 million on, which of course we're much smaller than LA. We have much less money than LA. $682 million dollars. That's still quite a lot of money, right? Yeah. Yes. And so when you look at what else Toronto spends their money on, it's quite shocking. So for Toronto Employment and Social Services, that's $62 million. So it's less than 10% oh my God. of what police gets. And actually, if you add up economic development and culture, paramedics, children's services, Toronto Employment and Social Services the Toronto Public Library, and shelter support and housing, you're still under, if you add all those things up, you're still under $682 million. The police makes more than all of those things combined. That, to me, makes no sense. And hopefully yeah. it makes no sense to other people too. Holy sh- holy poop. So I guess my sort of thesis at the end of this all is yeah, let's get to abolish police. Sure, I'm on board. Yeah. But number one, we got to do something about this funding right now. And we can do so in our own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, that's all. That's my point. Um, I encourage, as usual, everyone to do their own research. Numbers are hard and confusing. So if you find something that's easier to to read or understand, please please share them with us. Yeah. Um. I, I know that a lot of us are overwhelmed by numbers and stats. And so thank you for going on this journey with us. But it is the it is the proof. It is the science behind it. It is what's going to make change happen. Absolutely. And and like, I mean, to your point too about um, being kind of wooed by like LA, like coming to the rescue and defunding and then, and then that turning out to not actually be really anything. Um, we need to continue to remain critical. And I think for a lot of people, um, this... Like if, if, if now is the waking up moment, it is the moment to realize that um, we've complacently accepted a lot, of, uh, a lot of social constructions that are violent as not only reality, but the only way to live. And like, you know, I never would have thought to think outside of the, the, you know, the policing system or like would have dreamed to think of defunding and like dismantling and abolishing. But we need to, um, you know, we need to keep being critical and, and keep imagining better better realities for everybody really um and so yeah i just think it's a really really big call for um for education and for critical thinking now more than ever you know sure it's all accessible you just have to look yeah like i just looked on the toronto website to find those numbers so yeah um 
And also too, I should say like you and I, I've been very on, on Instagram and reposting and sharing. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of things that's like, you know, behind every like quote unquote woke white person, there's, um, a bunch of black people and a bunch of people of color who've done the labor to educate and it shouldn't sure. be up to, to, to black people and people of color anymore. So, um, you know, like I have a lot of people to thank and a lot of activists to thank and scholars to thank for the education that I have. And like, I sure. need to continue to keep doing that for myself. And I really hope that our listeners can do it as well. And I think I just want, I want to point out that it's probably understood, but we made a, again, not to be thanked for this, but we made a conscious decision to not have somebody black come on and talk about this because these are conversations that white people need to be having. Yes. And the lifting that white people need to do and the researching and the speaking out. Yeah. So it, it's on our shoulders now. It, it always has been, but it is now more than ever. Absolutely. And like, um, this is something that I've been trying to do more of lately. And it's that uh, breaking silence uh, between my white colleagues and, you know, um, and families, etc. And like, uh, it's not enough just to say, oh, it's going to be uncomfortable. So I'm not going to say anything. And it's not enough to say, you know, I'm I'm really tired and I can't do this work because what a lot of people are saying, a lot of black activists are saying is like, you know, if you're white and you suffer and you suffer from, um, you know, any form of mental illness, which I do, I have um, clinical depression and I have anxiety and, um, and this has been exacerbating. Um, But, but part of the work is what these black activists are saying. Part of the work is to take care of yourself enough that you can keep doing it because it's not an excuse just to say, Oh, I'm depressed and I can't, it's actually not Um, keeping healthy is part of it. Yeah. And also it actually, I, I forgot to say this when I was saying my statistics and such, but um, uh, black people having mental illness and depression and disabilities and then being policed for it is especially fucked because how else are you supposed to respond to a system in a society that was built to oppress you other than getting a mental illness, other than being depressed, right? Other than being anxious. Like it's not as though those things aren't linked in and of itself. Um, and so I think as we continue to, you know, imagine better societies and, and such like that, then it's also imagining um, societies in which, you know, we can be healthier um, through this work um, and come out the other side, but it's going to take a shit ton and it's going to hurt and it should hurt. It's going to hurt, you know, white people and we should, you know, be doing that work. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, I think it's time to wrap up. Yes. Uh, let's do that. Um, uh, this has been interesting. I'm, I might, I was scared, but I feel like me too. It feels the conversation was fine. (laughs) It feels almost silly how, like how anxious I think we were, you know? Um, But yeah, so I guess as we end this, we would just like to say that um, please, if you would like to come on our show and use our platform to amplify your voice, please reach out to us. Um, The reason we started this podcast, I think we, constantly say it and we we want to keep saying it is that it's supposed to be a hub it's supposed to be a platform for other queer voices um so this is your this is your microphone as much as it ours i know that sounds really hokey and corny and it is but absolutely this is what it's for to to amp- to amplify your voice and if you're too tired then we'll try to do the speaking for you yeah yeah totally um yeah like again like we'll do literally anything and, and we'll dedicate this platform in any way um and because it is pride i do want to say happy pride And, you know, a lot of people are saying like, Pride wasn't canceled this year because of coronavirus, like Pride trademark was canceled, like the corporate Pride was canceled, but 
pride has never needed to exist more and it is it is pride month and this is what pride looks like now so happy pride to everyone out there totally happy pride without further a queer we'll um we'll see you all soon see you soon we have some amazing guests coming up love y'all bye bye Do you queer? 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 Do you que